Welcome everyone to the Caribbean Science Fiction Network, a celebration of all things fantasy, folklore, speculative fiction, and of course, science fiction. Today I have with me from Puerto Rico, Carolina Cardona. Through the robot, I set out to explore topics that are very dear to us Caribbeans, which is hot-headed nationalism and patriotism from the standpoint of the shuffling lenses of a sentient robot being. We'll be talking about her debut novel, Anduhal, The Robot Gentleman of San Juan. Can a robot be patriotic in an age where so many of our cultural identities are being formed and everyone has to choose a side like, like it was happening around that time? And where do his ro- loyalties reside? What are the ultimate things that make a robot tick? And where is the robot's practical side? Uh, when is he neutral or indifferent? And what are his attitudes towards things like family, love, rivals? So Carolina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jarrell. Thank you so much for having me here. So I'm really excited to talk about uh, this, this novel, Anduhar, um, The Robot Gentleman of San Juan. It's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll just call it Anduhar from now on. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> Before we get into the novel, I wanted you to talk to us about your journey as a writer of science fiction, um, growing up up to the point of, of Anduhar. As a first novel, I always thought that I would write historical or paranormal romance. That was always sort of my my more my taste. Mm-hmm. I really n- never thought that I would ever write science fiction. Mm-hmm. And and steampunk, the genre of steampunk was something that I came across while I was already a published writer and I was already a professional. So Anduhar was not initially conceived as a science fiction or speculative fiction work mm-hmm. uh, or even as a novel, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, uh, when I was working at Ocean Drive magazine in Miami, I was cover. I was sent to San Diego Comic Con, which is a, uh, many of you know, it's a huge event, yeah. very significant, uh, trend-setting event. And while I was there covering, you know, it was everything was about Nintendo and Halo and Marvel. Um, I learned that you are, uh, as an attendee, you are allowed to bring art, your art portfolio, if you're a comic artist, or uh, or a script uh, for evaluation. Mm-hmm. And you can set up appointments. It's a whole thing. And and I said, well, next year that I come back, I'm not coming back as a journalist. I really am going to come back with something, uh, a script, a, a short, a short film, or something. So I come home, and you know, after I submit all my interviews that I had to do for the magazine, it's like I set out to like, feverishly start writing something. And I was going to write a period romance script. Yeah. And I start out as a script, but then as I begin to write it, um, and when you write a script, you you write the dialogue and you also have the descriptions. My descriptions started to get really detailed and really long. And I realized I don't want a director or really anybody else deciding what this sounds like or what this, what this looks yeah. like. So this is where I decided to just write the novel. And like I said, it was going to be a paranormal period romance. But then again, as I begin to write it now in novel form and and I go deeper into the historical research of the era, Mm -hmm. that late agro-industrial moment in time for the Caribbean, uh, the technological and infrastructure advances that are happening Mm -hmm. all over the world around that time, 
it, this begins to resonate strongly and it steers me away from paranormal and more towards science and speculative fiction. And then uh, at Comic-Con is where the first time I actually yeah. see people dressed in steampunk outfits, which is this Victorian yet, you know, they have jetpacks and goggles and I didn't really know what it was. And as I begin to study this genre, I start to put this together with the era. It really is Victorian era. And, uh, and then steampunk takes me to explore yeah. cyberpunk more closely. And then I knew this was not a paranormal romance. This was complete science fiction. On a broader scale, I want you to tell us more about what is Puerto Rican science fiction. Oh boy! So I, I and I and I think uh, a lot of your listeners and you yourself may relate to this. Uh, in my experience, and this is academically, school, university. Science fiction really wasn't a topic that was discussed in literature class. I grew up in a uh, very established uh, Catholic girls' school uh, that had very strong Spanish roots. So our English program was great, but it wasn't. Our Spanish uh, literature program was really stronger. So there's always been this contention, or at least in Latin American and Caribbean literature in Spanish, that we never really concerned ourselves too much with science fiction or speculative fiction or dove into topics of science and technology too much because there were other more pressing social concerns. So our literature always reflected class issues, cultural identity issues, social issues, literacy, marginalized issues. And they were, I mean, and for the most part, very tragic and distressing realities. Currently, I would say that local bookstores are pushing away from the more traditional and centralized cultural institutions and those avenues of discourse. Uh, Puerto Ricans in the U.S. diaspora, um, people like Professor Dr. Matthew Goodwin at the University of New Mexico, he runs a Latinx, or Latinx speculative fiction hub online, okay. and he's hosting a symposium in March of 2023, which I was invited to represent sort of the genre of steampunk. So I am happy to see that professors, and particularly English professors at the University of Puerto Rico, they are incorporating pop culture and they are incorporating science fiction into courses. Uh, we have some Star Wars courses oh. that fill up in minutes. Oh yeah, out of the University of, of Miami, Dr. Vanessa um, Vicente. So uh, Jose Raul Feliciano is a science fiction author who explores robotics and AI. Uh, I myself, uh, I'm doing my little part with, uh, I offer a steampunk in the tropics author session at schools and universities. So um, we are trying to break free from that uh, image that, that the Caribbean is not an active participant in science fiction or cyberpunk or steampunk because it's not true. <laughs> well, where can I sign up for this Star Wars course? Uh, <laughs> I will hook you up. <laughs> Let's talk about Andujar, the man and the novel. Um, because here we have robots in 1897. <laughs> so, so say, say more about the inspiration behind this, this work of historical sci-fi. What I did here is that I took your quintessential 19th century romance novel, uh, which starts with your dark and brooding hero. But instead of having the dandy of the late 19th century or what you would have right now, say, the Latin lover, mm -hmm. 
you have a very mysterious being that you're not sure who or what he is. And later you discover that he is Morse. He's something else. He's not really that dandy or that that 19th century mystery man uh, that is uh, somehow causing a ruse in society. Um, And I originally envisioned Santos as, um, you know, again, this mysterious, reclusive 19th century consumptive. This is why this was going to be a a paranormal. So he was going to be this kind of sickly man who was a recluse, who's more dead and alive, and he was left ravaged by a mysterious illness. So as I was writing him, I began to outfit him with prosthetics. Mm. And the more I wrote, the more significant these prosthetics sort of became in the narrative, the more enigmatic that they became. So at first they had this very 19th century metal steampunk feel, like very stiff metal, yeah. like you, <laughs> uh, vintage, uh, sort of, you know, very 19th century automaton. Yeah. So I began to call him that as a goof. <laughs> But then as the pieces begin to fall together and, and I start to see him more clearly, I start to think about why is his name Santos? Why I start to make the connections of this, like in the Caribbean, we used to name our hurricanes after saints. Mm. And from there, I start to make the connection of his name, meaning saints, to the storms. And then I see our hurricanes very much look like galaxies. Yeah. So there's this cosmic origin, this cosmic mystery surrounding him. Then there's the mystery that kills his family that is still kind of nebulous as I write it. So suddenly that automaton goof stops being funny (laughs) and the puzzle comes together. And that was like by far the the most fun part, having this sweeping love story, which, you know, traditionally centers around the, the... a smooth dandy Latin lover type and then have this stiff robot in the middle so as the, as the love interest so um in the sense of for as a as a, a robot in a story a robot in in 1897 1898 uh you speculate right that uh, in step with the rest of the world there is some knowledge especially among the upper classes and educated classes in the Caribbean that such a thing as a, an automaton exists but it's more of it's a novelty that's far away to toy, a puppet, an amusement, not something in the Caribbean, not something sentient or miraculous or that can potentially alter history or humanity. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that that you have dancing around in 19th century ball in San Juan. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> later we, you know, as, as you read the novel, you discover how and why there is a robot gentleman in San Juan. And, and, but also you discovered that this robot gentleman is the middle point of an evolution mm-hmm. of the robot himself. So the story traces Santos and Santos's ancestor, his name is Lorenzo Andujar, as this medieval knight, the founding patriarch of the Andujar name. So he, and, and Lorenzo, in a sense, is the original weaponized man of metal. So what, because what is a knight, really? It's a man of metal. Yeah. And the evolution from the medieval knight takes you to the 19th century automaton, who is Santos, towards the next evolutionary step, which is your cyberpunk robot, Seraph One, mm-hmm. the new weapon to fight our new wars. Because in a sense, the Spanish-American war represents the new war. Yeah. It's a new, inv- a new invader from the sea. We're no longer dealing with pirates. We're dealing with the United States who a formerly colonized country who's now turned colonizer. So 
through the robot, I set out to explore topics that are very dear to us Caribbeans, which is hot-headed nationalism <laughs> and patriotism <laughs> from the standpoint of the shuffling lenses of a sentient robot being. Yeah. Can a robot be patriotic in an age where so many of our cultural identities are being formed and everyone has to choose a side like, like it was happening around that time? And where do his loyalties reside? What are the ultimate things that make a robot tick? Mm -hmm. And where is the robot's practical side? Uh, when is he neutral or indifferent? And what are his attitudes towards things like family, love, rivals? So that, that was really why. Once I knew that he wasn't really a cyborg or a, or a sick man in prosthetics, he was a full-on robot. That's when things got really interesting and fun to write. Just from the title alone, he's not just a robot, he's a robot gentleman. <laughs> and this quality <laughs> of being a gentleman, um, I almost see it coming up in the theme of humanity that you explore as a robot. Um, at one point, the novel says more artifact than man. But it does, it does, at times, he does seem more man than artifact. Um, so why was the exploration of humanity important for you? Um, given what you said, what Anduhar can do for the Caribbean, what he can represent. And did you learn anything about what it means to be human in the process of writing this novel? So, and I'm going to come back to you because uh, you, you would know this as a man uh, yourself. Uh, being a gentleman is nothing but a program. It is a set of rules that you must follow uh, to behave in society, to behave towards women, to behave towards the elderly. And these all take root the gentleman's roots as a concept comes from the medieval knight, which is why the medieval knight is so culturally significant in the novel as well. The medieval knight had two values, courtesy and chivalry. Now, we often mistake chivalry with courtesy. Chivalry is really just the attitude of the knight that means the strong protects the weak. That is what compels the man, the knight, to look after not only weaker men, uh, but, you know, weaker in, in quotes, of course, all these concepts, quote unquote, uh, women, the elderly children, that is your duty as the stronger person, whereas courtesy is what goes into courtship. So all of these things are interwoven and they all root from the same thing. It is the evolution of the night. So I wanted to transfer those aspects of humanity and how they would be processed or even mathematically calculated in the language of a computer machine and by a robotic being, but in the context again, of a period era romance that has completely nothing to do with, with computers or robots or mathematics. So I thought that was like the challenge there. Yeah. So you mentioned um, representing this, our uh, hot-blooded, um, hot-headed patriotism. Um, and I want to take that a little further. Anything we can learn from this story? <laughs> the hot-headedness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the hot-headedness certainly was, was something because I think almost every novel I've ever written, I've ever read, yeah. rather, involving the Caribbean and the Spanish-American War, it's always about finding your identity yeah. and then you fight for it, right? And with a hot-headed zeal. And it's like, how would a robot or someone looking at this from a more scientific or practical point of view mm -hmm. feel about it. 
And I wanted to see what if I have protagonists who aren't hot-headed, who aren't immediately, you know, the, that passion looks in a very different way than what we typically see. So that was uh, one, of the, one of the things that compelled me to write the story the way it did. Uh, but about this exploration of our own humanity, I would say that the premise of my novel truly asked the reader one thing is, can you fall in love with a robot? Because we see cyberpunk and it's always like the women with the ridiculous bodies and, and, the, and, the, and you know, the circuits and all that stuff. And that, that's a thing. I get it, you know, uh, that, that attraction or fetish-like thing. But when, you come down, when it comes down to it, can you, as a person, fall in love with a robot? And that has been explored in, in movies and works before. But I'm always curious at the people who can answer yes to this question. And I myself consider, you know, one of them. And what does that say about us? Whatever the answer, he really doesn't care. He, he clings to his humanity. He doesn't accept anything else, anything other than him being a full-fledged complex human soul with spirituality and all the trappings and, and a belief in heaven and a belief in hell. So Despite his enhancements, despite his advancements, despite his capabilities, despite the staggering power and capable, you know, capability for destruction, he does not accept any other possibility that he is a person. And he defends that psychosomatic humanity despite his own creator. He fights to restore his human routine at any cost and even harnesses the same power of creation that humans have, ultimately. It's the novel, although futuristic, there are references to Havana in 1899. There's the industrial tune, which we mentioned already. So I want to get a sense for me the kind of historical research that went into this novel, because it seems like you did a lot. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> way, way too much that I met, but it was, it was so fun. So... I have always been a Victorian and Edwardian era buff, uh, especially from my years studying literary influences and historical contexts of Latin American modernism at the higher academic level. I did my master's th uh, thesis on it. So and I, I was more than happy to use all that knowledge acquired. But uh, the novel envisions a Caribbean. It's a very specific vision that although still very much agro-industrial like the rest of the Caribbean, it is very in tune with the industrial achievements of the late 19th century. So it's a Caribbean or a Spanish-speaking Caribbean that although it, that is resentful, disillusioned, and at odds with Spain, and is looking at Spain as this medieval past, you know, sort of colonizer who's not in tune with what's happening in the world. So now it's turning to Paris and London and New York. It's turning its eyes towards those uh, metropolis as, as the places where advancement and, and, and achievement is happening as scientific and industrial and, 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 and economic. So I envision Havana as, you know, a large city like Havana striving to fall in, st in step 
with cities like Chicago. And, and you know, at the beginning you hear Havana is planning its own world exposition, you know, a place where, uh, you know, an event where someone like Tesla could mingle with Edison and Westinghouse and all these all these things can happen. So I did accelerate the electrification of the city of San Juan by a few years for the for the novel, while at the same time I expanded upon the independent struggles from Spain and those fights that were happening in Puerto Rico and were very active, especially around the 1860s. So I, I took a little poetic license there. Um, I, I also heavily researched, oh my gosh, the Spanish-American War and the complexities and the machinations that were happening behind the scenes to motivate it and the complex feelings about that were on the island about US intervention so there were spies there were people who wanted this there were people who didn't want it and what was the feeling how did those lines were divided so there were also these efforts uh, seeing the, the the decay of Spain as as the golden opportunity for self-governance um, and then on the more technical side, I was researching, you know, ironclad ships and artillery and strategy and weaponry. So um, I came across a local Puerto Rican author who who wrote about the May of 1898, the bombardment of San Juan, which was an incident that wasn't covered heavily when I was growing up. Um, we always mentioned the same invasion through the, you know, the amphibious invasion through the town of Guanica, which is what everybody always references, but there was a bombardment a couple of months prior that makes so, when you read about it, it made so little logical sense. It seems so dramatic and so, at the same time, so historically innocuous that, and its conclusion was so absurd that I figured, hey, this is the only logical place for me to insert, for me to insert an awesome robot battle at sea. So without necessarily changing history. So I spent time reviewing photographs and archives and old history books. I spoke to university professors. I looked at naval war museums. And, and there's, even, there's even a short reel of that bombardment and you see El Moro getting hit. So something few, I think few Puerto Ricans have seen in film since most of the Moro attacks predate television and, and photography. I want to mention the oh, my first Puerto Rican guest um, in season one, for those listening, Rafael Ocasio, a literary historian. He mentioned that in the 18th century, folklore was used to map the island. It was part of a, a survey. But I want to ask you, how do you see your science fiction novel mapping Puerto Rico? From my point of view, now seeing Puerto Rico's evolution as a tourist destination, and by the way, we have to take into account that I myself and have been and continue to be a career travel writer. I can definitely say that there is a clear, maybe not mapping, but there's a clear travel writing intention in, in the steampunk period romance. Uh, the novel itself, I got to say, was inspired by a stay at a hotel in Old San Juan. And uh, as far as mapping, um, I... It does trace the city's grid faithfully, albeit with some poetic license here and there, and other scenic spots of the island. Uh, and it is meant for visitors and residents that if they truly like the novel, I can point to places where certain scenes take place. 
Uh, so it does have a little bit of a travel writing and touristy intention behind it. Um, you, in the novel, not only, you know, you're in the grid of old San Juan, but you you visit spots like Oaxaca, you visit the city of Mayaguez, uh, you visit uh, Arecibo, Arecibo beaches. So as someone from the Caribbean, uh, you know, it is usually done with some of those trappings of admiration and lyricism and nostalgia. But I think, and I, I think only the house in the country is not zip code specific, as I drew inspiration from, from various estates. But I think it is safe to say that it would be accessible, you know, enough for San Juan. But it's a small island, so it's it's more like, yeah, take the Andujar tour of the island, of course. And 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 to some of the readers, when I do go on signings, um, I I always write, I try to write, you know, thoughtful dedications when I when I go on these to these signings. Um, I love talking to people, and they tell me their experiences with the book, and I let them know I stayed at this specific hotel in Old San Juan, and I described the house very much like the hotel, because I think once I stayed there, this character just appeared, um, and the story sort of appeared just just by virtue of of that beautiful house where I stayed. So absolutely, it's it's not only mapping, but it has uh, hotel suggestions for you. <laughs> Carolina, we were coming down to the end of the chat, but I want to ask you, can we look forward to any more Robot Gentleman? Or are you done with Robot Gentleman? <laughs> I, uh, as, as far as Andujar, when you read the novel, um, I think that topic is kind of done. I am working on a second book, but this one will be uh, cyberpunk and it's unrelated. Yeah, looking forward, <laughs> looking forward. I mean, I, I could get more of Andujar, I'm just saying. Um. Ah! <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. He's, he's really cool. And, and, and the, the fun part is that um, we actually created a robot gentleman to take with us to Comic-Con. And then once the Comic-Cons come back, um, not only, you know, if you guys come and I happen to see you, come say hi, and you may be able to take a selfie with the gentleman. The gentleman <laughs> does accompany me to these events. Oh, there you go. Carolina, <laughs> do you want to leave us with anything? I would say that to creators and fans of science fiction, find each other look for each other, especially in the Caribbean. I, I believe that it, there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity for all of us as creators and, and, and avid fans of speculative fiction, and I'm including, I'm including fantasy as well in this, yeah. uh, for us to find each other, find our commonalities, and, and begin to network uh, through Instagram, uh, I'm at the tro the tropical eccentric. You can find me, but I am finding these groups and and increasing uh, awareness of just the kind of works that we're producing and consuming, and and the things that connect us as a as a Caribbean community. Um, so absolutely, find each other, please, and and more events, more interviews. Uh, we do need to get the word out there about the quality and the and the creativity that is coming from our islands. We have unique struggles and unique challenges and unique circumstances that um, taking us away from the tourist destination thing. We have a wealth of cultural offerings that are, especially now with pop culture, very relevant. Uh, and we should get them out there. So don't be shy, just search and, and, and you will find. 
Carolina, I want to thank you so much for doing this and for everyone listening, thank you as well. Continue to stay tuned to the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. Bye.